It is Tuesday, September 1st, 2020, and you are listening to the Federalist Forum, a constitutional think tank for every patriotic American. Today on the Federalist Forum, we're going to do a little time travel to drink from the skulls of our adversaries. I'm going to take you to some of the most fundamental roots of political failure in history and show you how frighteningly close they parallel the politics of today. Coming up next on the Federalist Forum. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Federalist Forum. I'm your host, Tom. Thank you for tuning in to the podcast that's become a popular resource for conservative truth and activism, a podcast where we expose and vanquish the deeply rooted lies and hatred showcased by the modern left. We say that Democrats don't learn from history, but I think we're mistaken. They learn from it, but what they choose to take from it is the evil that's rooted in it. They learn from history's examples of how to subjugate, enslave, coerce, and manipulate people. They learn how to you know, take the worst examples of selfish Machiavellian behavior in history to feed their tyrannical egos. I'm going to spend a little time today talking about that. I think it's important to recognize the patterns of behavior so that we can apply history's lessons of how to overcome and defeat those who are trying to destroy our constitutional republic. Now, I've often talked about the decline of the United States resembling the fall of the Roman Empire, and there are so many parallels. Arguably one of the greatest civilizations in history relative to its era, there are some very frightening parallels to be learned from the collapse of the Roman Empire compared to what we see happening in America currently. The fall of the Roman Empire was largely a progressive failure to enforce its rule of law. The Romans lost the united strengths that had allowed them to exercise effective control over their individual provinces. And much of that was accelerated by economic disruption, the lack of competence of their leaders, the internal struggles for power, the dissolution of traditional values, uh, an increased populace of unchecked immigrants, particularly foreign barbaric tribes, and the inefficiency, corruption, and abuse of the empire's civil administration. Consider the parallels. You're going to hear me say that quite a few times throughout today's podcast. Consider the parallels in what I just said. The economic disruption, the lack of competence of their leaders, the earned internal struggles for power, the dissolution of traditional values, an increasing populace of unchecked immigrants, particularly foreign barbarian tribes, the inefficiency, corruption, and abuse of the empire's civil administration. Does any of this sound familiar? All of it sounds familiar. But it wasn't a sudden process. In fact, the Roman Empire saw more than 130 attempted uprisings over 800 years of its storied civilization. So maybe there is some hope that in that endurance, that their civilization still persisted despite all of that turmoil. However, there are some very important and frightening lessons we should take from the chronology of their turmoil. Some lessons that, relative to the age and maturity of their civilization, are eerily similar to our relatively young United States civilization. Of those more than 130 uprisings uh, within the Roman Empire, only three or four of them occurred in its first 200 years. Now consider the first 200 years of internal conflict in the United States. We've had three as well. Consider the parallels. We had, most substantially, the American Indian Wars, which involved colonists and then the early American government against various American Indian and First Nation tribes. These conflicts occurred from the time of the earliest colonial settlements in the 17th century until about the 1920s. And the various Indian Wars resulted from a wide variety of factors, including cultural differences, land disputes, and crimes committed on both sides. 
and these were bloody skirmishes over ideals and rights very early in our country's existence. The second would be our American Civil War. Of course, the predominant thing that comes to mind is the issue of slavery, but there were many other points of contention that were already brewing. And a couple of those, just a couple really, one of the main flashpoints was the economics of cotton. The financial and political influence of cotton in the 18th and 19th century was unprecedented. It was perhaps far greater than that of the oil industry in the late 20th and early 21st century. With the introduction of the cotton gin in 1793 and the flourishing slave trade, the southern states of America became the primary cotton suppliers of the world. And by the mid-19th century, the southerners were supplying more than 70% of the cotton to Great Britain. And the leading world economic and colonial power at the time. The plantation owners with black cotton growing slaves gained tremendous wealth and influence during these times and were willing to go to any lengths to protect their interests. So the long tension between the northern free states and the southern slave states was reaching a boiling point at this time and with the economies of major world powers such as Britain and France depended on cotton from the southern states many southerners believed that world powers would intervene on their on their behalf giving them the confidence to take on the more powerful and resourceful north we know of course that it didn't quite play out that way but that was a big factor in in the war in addition to slavery states rights was another big factor the, pol the politics and debates over which powers belonged to sovereign states and which to the federal government were not uncommon in the United States since its inception. It was, in fact, the basis for the formation of its first two political parties. The Democratic-Republican Party, formed in 1792 under Thomas Jefferson, favored state rights, while the Federalists, under Alexander Hamilton, believed in a centralized national government with strong fiscal roots. Slavery was to be one of the main bones of contention in this state versus federal government tussle leading up to the Civil War. The, the slave states were adamant that slavery was a state issue and they were unwilling to accept any federal intervention on the subject. Consider the parallels. State governments, early Democrats, refusing to accept federal intervention because it might infringe on their ability to control the people that they had already enslaved. The third uprising in America would be really the civil rights movement of the 1960s and concurrently the anti-war demonstrations that were happening uh, with regard to the Vietnam War. So both the Roman Empire and the United States saw three more significant, up, you know, roughly three more significant uprisings in their first 200 years. Most of Ro the Roman Empire's internal conflicts, the ones that really led to the um, the fall of the empire, didn't reach their fruition until its third century in existence. And the U.S. is currently almost halfway through uh, our third century of existence. Uh, it's a little frightening to think about. And I want to draw your attention to a few really acute points uh, of civil war or civil contention in history. Because I think there's themes in these that stand out uh, that we need to recognize. You know, first, the year of the five emperors in the year 193. Uh, in which five men claimed the title of Roman Emperor. This year started a period of civil war in Rome when multiple rulers vied for the chance to become Caesar. You know, consider the parallels. Not so much the number, but the turbulence of multiple people or parties refusing to concede. Consider the rhetoric being planted already by people like Hillary Clinton suggesting Biden not concede and not accept the results of the election. Think of the way the Democrats in Congress have been consumed by authoritarian greed and power over the past couple of years, trying to usurp the executive branch and the Constitution. 
Much like the year of the five emperors, it's a time in which those who don't have legitimate power are still claiming it and refusing to concede before an election even takes place and regardless of the rules and laws of our land. The next example I want to point to is the first English Civil War, which occurred in the 1640s. It was a skirmish of division between the country's leader, the king at the time, and the country's legislature, the parliament. Consider the parallels. Both sides started traveling around the country to gather supporters and weapons, really, and power and might. Uh, propaganda, everything that goes along with that. The king found more support in the countryside, where the parliament found more support in the larger cities. People who held on to the traditional values of the country mostly supported the king, and those who left the Church of England altogether considered themselves separists, separatists and mostly supported the parliament. It's frightening when you consider how closely tangential it is to the way the United States is today and how people perceive power and how they align themselves with it. The last historical perspective I want to offer is known as the War of Two Brothers and was a civil war within the Inca Empire in South America in the early 1500s. It, consider some real eerie parallels here. After Spanish settlers had carried smallpox to the continent, which had been endemic among Europeans for centuries, the new infectious disease erupted in epidemics and caused high mortality and disaster for the Incas and other indigenous people who had no immunity to it. And that threw the empire into chaos and a fight for control between the two brothers who both claimed title of absolute power, both had their own ideas of how that should be managed. Uh, one brother, Atahopo, was revered among the country's commoners as someone who stood in the face of evil was courageous in the face of adversity, and allegedly had cunning and early wisdom. He seemed to be steps ahead of his adversaries. The other brother, uh, Housecar, was described as ill-tempered, suspicious, and disrespectful of laws and customs. He and the elites in the Inca Empire considered Atahualpa to be illegitimate. How familiar does this sound? <laughs> you, know, um, <clears throat> you know, 500 years later, almost. So Atahualpa wanted to work with his brother on ruling the empire together like our Congress and, you know, our president would, wants to work with our Congress. So he sent his most trusted captains to Cusco, along with generous gifts of gold and silver, which was customary at the time. But his brother, suspicious of the offering, refused Adahopo's offering. And accusing the half-brother of rebellion, he ordered some of his messengers killed and then sent his captains back dressed as women. Again, maybe that's just a funny uh, comparison, really, but... When you, as you, you read these things uh, and you recognize them, you, it's so easy to equate them to what's happening today. Now you tell me, could those people pass as, I mean, modern Democrats, ancestors, or what? I mean, just consider the irony in, in the way the power grab started with an infectious disease and led to rebellion over who should have the power. You know, the story of the War of Two Brothers is a very interesting one. And there are a number of books out there about the Inca Empire. I could spend an hour on that one alone, but I don't want to stray too far from the point. I will add this, though. Atahualpa would be successful against Halskar. And, in fact, in one battle he captured and killed many of his soldiers, including his head general, uh, general Atak. And, actually, he was, had been tortured with darts and arrows, and he had a skull made into a gilding drinking cup, which uh, Spaniards noted that Atahualpa was still using four years later after, after the Civil War had ended. Okay, so let me bring this all the way back around. While I don't expect we'll be drinking from the skulls of our enemies, so to speak, 
we are now past the fringe of bloody rebellion. We're there. We here in America are in we're amid civil rebellion. We're principled people, patriotic people with a belief in law, order, tradition, and respect are facing off against people made of hatred, anger, deceitfulness, and greed. People who once professed love and tolerance, but when they didn't get their way, they devolved into lawless anarchy and violence. This is not going to go away, and is not going to improve as long as the Democrats turned Marxists refuse to stop the violence of their base, and in fact, instead enabling it and using their propagandists in the media to further their narratives. What lies ahead of us, I don't think will look medieval or even conventional in any way. I believe we're going to continue to see violent resistance and aggression in Democrat-controlled cities. And that may be uh, skirmishes between patriots and some of these anarchists that we've seen two instances of now in Kenosha and Portland that have resulted in deaths. I believe there will be outliers too. I think we will see random acts of violence related to political division that will find their way into rural areas. Uh, probably in the way of ambush-style attacks. It's scary to think about it, but... When you consider what the left is doing right now, how boldly they're doing it, and without any care or concern with which they're doing it, you can't put anything past them, and you have to be prepared for this. Um, that is the mind of violence. That is the mind of people who believe they have nothing to lose and are consumed with their desire for power. It's the mindset of individuals who are easily led, like fools, by bureaucrats willing to spill any amount of their own countrymen's blood to make their point. This is similar to me to the way the U.S. has covertly engaged in cultural conflicts for decades around the world. And we now have outside influences doing the same to us, and it's being ignored by those who seek to benefit from it. Now, perhaps it's our turn. Perhaps it's poetic, even, that it would seem to be that Marxism is making an infiltration into democracy, where in the last century it's been democracy that's infiltrated Marxism. Tragically, like most of these other situations of its kind, it's going to be our youth who become the greatest casualty. If you think about the examples that I've shared today and think deeper than just the tangible pieces of them, you can see the similarities in what has prefaced this. The appeal for power, the lack of trust, the refusal to collaborate, the refusal to concede, the struggle for localized control. There are so many common denominators in just the very few examples I gave, and there are so many more examples than that. Friends, we've been saying that the Democrats haven't learned from history. Because our perception is that good people visit the mistakes of their past to ensure that goodness prevails. But Democrats, by and large, are not good people. They are keen to history, but they see it as a roadmap for how to reach a chaos and destruction that in the end is never sustainable. They are fully aware of what they are doing. And the sooner that we recognize and accept that so we can defeat it, the better. That is all I have for today, Patriots. As I said last week too, please keep an eye on each other because this is only going to become uglier, more violent, um, and sadly, I think, more deadly as the election approaches and, and even in the months beyond that. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd, as always, I'd be grateful if you'd take a minute to share it with your family and friends. Subscribe, leave me a review if you'd be so kind. Feel free to follow and engage with me on Parlor. My handle is at ExposingLibsBS or drop me an email at ExposingLiberalBS at gmail.com. It is time for all of us to passionately take action, and we the people have a proud history of doing just that. You've been listening to the Federalist Forum. Thank you for your listenership and for your patriotism as we fight together to preserve the founding principles of our constitutional republic. Until next time, 
Sapientia est potentia. Wisdom is power.